unlike you, I watched the whole thing live. Okay. With yeah, I don't watch live anything. No, no, you shouldn't anymore because it's not, it's not valuable. Because you just wasted your time if you have something better to do. There's no point in sitting down and like, oh, uh, the, the TV doesn't tell us anymore. You need to sit down here and watch right, me. Right, like, It just doesn't do that anymore. Yeah. So I watched it live, and the whole thing happened. They tried, I could tell that they tried to fix the edit. They tried to cut it in the live stream. They were doing their best to cover up anything that happened and make it seem like that that was, they could make up the story later for right. anybody who wasn't there. Like you would yeah. do if you have, were running that event. And so I knew that that was real as soon as it happened. But you get a chance to watch it after having heard about it from everybody else. So what did you think? I mean, I, I thought a, a couple of things. One is, as, a, as somebody that writes comedy, I thought, this is, just, this is just more cancel culture. But it's in-person cancel culture. The, the comedians are getting the, um, the comedians that are actually funny are the ones telling the truth. And we're increasingly living in a truth-free zone where the truth is dangerous to the powers that be um, because the powers that be don't want freedom for the world and truth sets us free. And so comedians are dangerous. And uh, so my first thought was, this, is, this has been going on for a while, and this is the, but this is the first time we're seeing it up in person. Now it's... It's actually less dangerous one-on-one than most of the comedian slapping that's been going on where they cancel Twitter, lose your job, you know, get, get kicked out of society, basically. Um, that, uh, this, this is less dangerous but more poignant, right, in terms of a moment, right? You've, mm. seen, um, you've seen a lot of comedians get canceled or get rolled back on something you know, uh, and or they're or they're afraid their old jokes are going to come out again, or you know, um, you guy like uh, <coughs> well, there's so many comedians that used to that used to have a section in their stand up about homosexuals. Or, yeah, you know, yeah. It was just a it was just a standard. Yeah, like you had to have one of those. Yeah, to, um, because. Uh, Ultimately, what makes something funny is reality. Right, right. Is that, and it's pointing to it's pointing to the bits of reality that it's not. So there's there's a couple of ways that you can be funny with truth, but one of the most effective ones is pointing to those bits of reality that people have experienced, but they know they're not supposed to talk about, and that feeling of discomfort, and the feeling of humor are so close to one another that they bleed into one another. And so those truths that we're uncomfortable with make us laugh. And, and, um, but they have a, a really positive effect, right? You, if you're a bunch of people laughing together, are, quit being rivals, right? It has a knitting effect inter- communally, mm. um, laughter does. And so there was something, there's, there's something important, that, uh, an important role that comedians play in society. And... Um, it can be, it can go wrong, right? There's laws in Leviticus about how you're not allowed to trip blind people, right? Mm. And you think, well, that's weird, except for when you've been around to non-Christian areas, right? That's a standard joke that where the where the blind person becomes 
everybody laughs at you the blind person. You punked the wrong person, right? right? Yeah, like, oh, yeah, you're, like you're getting punked. Yeah, oh, you, you punked the, but you punked the blind. You punked person. the blind person, and everybody laughs at it. Dude, that's a good point. Yeah, but that so that's bad for society, right? God literally puts it in the law: you're not allowed to trip a blind this, person. This is my theonomy. The, my theonomy just went <laughs> overflow. Like, oh wow, I didn't even apply that one right. yet. So that that there's it's a societal. Um, it's a it's a societal protection um, that we need uh, because it's so it's so easy it's so funny because we don't we won't have it's the same thing that I, you know I think with eye for eye and tooth for tooth is what it's doing yeah it's saying like you can't meet out There's, this type of um, joke or th- these people are outside of that category there's always a protected yeah, class there's right? always right and there's, and in the protected class. It's not the king, right? It's not That's the right. it's not the the high priest, right? There's all it's the it's the blind person. Right. It's the you know the, that the so the protected class, um, scripturally speaking, from humor yeah. is the um, is the handicapped, right? So then, would you say that then Chris Rock's joke went too far because I, she has yeah? Alopecia. So it, so she ha- so. If he knew, and that's the thing is, he didn't know. He did know. That's he didn't know. That's oh, what, that, so far, yeah, so like far, that's he had, he had so known. so. Um, you know, uh, that's where like, did he know? I don't know. I I and I haven't really even read up on it much. Because um, there are there are discipl- like biblically, if you know something and you you do it, there's a different right. It's a different yeah versus somebody exactly. who doesn't know right. And, and this is like the difference between a bringing a full goat for atonement and right. having to right. bring an offering right. you know, that's, that's smaller. Exactly. That's, oh, Leviticus matters. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. I, right? I love the book of Leviticus. That's and, funny. That, anyway, yeah. yeah. So um, so you have this, this situation where he poked a bear that I think he didn't realize he was poking, right? His response, because um, his response was, I just got... The hell, uh, Will Smith just smacked the hell out of me on yeah, live yeah, TV, yeah, yeah. right? He, I think he responded really well in the midst of it, um, and maybe he was thinking like, "I'm not sure what I just did, but I did something. I, I you know, I stepped I over something, something yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah." And you know, the, there's a, an aspect in which, like, growing up, that's kind of how you learned where the lines were in junior high. You, <laughs> you make jokes and stuff, and then your friend turns around and punches you, and you're like, "Oh." Learned, Dude, it was there's a joke. A line. Yeah, My mama yeah. is off limits for <laughs> right, you. Yeah, okay, just right, so yeah. you know, mama jokes. It's like there's, there's, and you learn, and you learn that in a, in a community of friends, that's, that's how you learn stuff, right? On live TV. This, this. I think he was fine with taking the smack too. I think Chris Rock was fine with taking the smack. But he, because he's like, okay, well, he just smacked me on TV. This yeah. is great. All right, my bad, dude. Like, yeah. And then he had probably had a couple more jokes. Um, He's like, but I want to say him because I don't want to. My other side of my yeah. face, I don't want to feel as numb oh, yeah. as my right side. You can you you can see him doing the uh, social He's calculations. The math. Yeah, he was running the map. But then I think when Will started yelling at him from his seat, he realized, oh, this is more serious than yeah. I thought it was. Right. And that's when he kind of backed up and said, "Let me." Uh, he backed way up. Yeah. He backed way up. He started over, and said, "Okay, we're going a different direction, right?" Which I think was the right thing to do. You know, that's he, but. He his joke was over the line, wrong, and um, you know the so you had this weird situation where Will Smith is in a society where that's what you do 
when the jester goes over the line, whatever the line currently is, right, is coercive violence. Now, if you can't get to them, you use Twitter, you know, you, whatever. You, this is what we saw in, in the whole riots after George Floyd, right? right? Yeah. So, so that, that, the, that the acceptable um, response is coercive violence. And, you know, scripturally speaking, that's not, that's not the case. You know, you, but, um, but, that's, but it was, I, I thought, my, my first thought was par for the course. Right, that's the kind of society we live in now. The um, the the term uh, "don't shoot the messenger" comes from Tudor uh, the 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 Tudor era kings used to send uh, their jester as messengers, and uh, if they had a message they didn't like, they would chop the head off the jester and shoot it over the wall um, back at, at back at you. Right, they would stick it in the catapult. <laughs> And so, don't, yeah, don't shoot the messenger. Um, is this is a, the and um, but the just the the because there's no room for jokes, right? There's no room for a jester in wartime. If if you've got an absolute rivalry, an absolute war, if you've got total in in a total war situation, there's no room for jesters, and that's. How you test what kind of relationship do we have? I'll send the jester over. Let's see. Like, and if you can, and if the jester comes back, you realize, okay, we're not at total war yet. But if you send a jester in with your message, with your message, and they say, nope, not having that, and they kill the jester and shoot him back at you with a catapult, then you know, okay, we're in a total warfare situation. There is no, there's no room um, for jokes anymore, and no room for peace and. So, or, is that, so when a society loses its humor, loses its comedy? Yeah, there's, you, you're in a, you're in a, to, a some sort of totalizing, totalitarian wow. situation. Right. That's an interesting way to look at it. So when comedy is gone, when humor is gone, that is pointing to something in reality to say some part of reality is flipped upside down. Right, right. So that nothing is funny anymore. Or you can't have you humor. can't have humor anymore, right? So because because we're beyond it, right? We're beyond that situation now. In a Christian worldview, you're never beyond humor because the in, entirety of world history is a comedy, right? God, he has a straight man named Satan that keeps trying to set things up. And then he keeps pulling gags on Satan over and over. He's and Wiley Coyote, right? Exactly. And and the the resurrection is the biggest punchline of them all, right? Where you see mm. Satan thinks I've finally got him, right? I killed him. <laughs> yeah, I Look, killed him, right? And death. and then he looks down and he realizes he's out off over the cliff. You know, right. um, that, that's interesting. So the um, there's this deep fundamental comedic nature to the way God interacts with the world and with evil and with history. And he even, you know, the, the, the greatest callback of all time in terms of punchline callback is going to be the resurrection at the end of time. Jesus is the first fruits, the beginning of the resurrection. But it's all just the, fir- the, you know, the first hint at the punchline. And there's a, a full-on callback coming at the end when everything is raised, right? So then how do, with the world like it is, 
because every comedian saw that when Kathy Griffith gets up there and says, that's too far. Right. Like, Kathy Griffith. <laughs> Kathy Griffith holding the Trump Trump's head up and says, mm, that's too that's far, too right? That's too far. <laughs> because a, a comedian getting smacked, if he des- and I said this on Willock, if he deserves to get smacked, then what do I deserve? What do I deserve? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so the comedians have said this has gone too far. And so now every, well, every comedian has been scared to tell the jokes that they know they really want to tell except Dave Chappelle. Right. Every comedian except right. Dave Chappelle. And everybody saw Dave Chappelle and was like, oh, okay, so that trajectory is now open. But but there, but I, I don't know if it is because even Chappelle... No, you're right. It's not. Right. But there's a few. That, the, there's a few that were like, okay, Kevin good. Hart didn't stand up and say, oh, I'm going that direction. Right. He didn't do that. So Chappelle stood up and he said, I'm going this way. He closed the door behind him and said, anybody coming? And I don't know if anybody's coming or not. Uh, there's a few. There's only like three or four comedians that I know that are saying, I'm going to say what I want to say. Right. But how do, how do <coughs> then seeing if, so there was a time where in the black community, ministers were respected. Right. Not just pastors, ministers of the gospel were respected. Yep. Um, and pastors were highly respected. If you go back and trace the black community, they were the ones driving and leading the black community. They were right. the ones who could read. They were the ones who were educated. They were the ones who made political decisions for us. Here's how we're going to move. They were the direction in which the black community had success, right? Yeah. It came through the pastor. And now the pastors in our communities are nothing more than uh, a dead carcass right. that said, I guess that thing used to be pretty huge. It's a huge dead carcass, right? The, and... The, and uh, there was a significant sellout moment. Yes, there's when right. the pro, I, and I want to mark that at the pro-life moment, at the pro-life right. moment where, because Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson were huge pro-life folks right. before he started to run for president, before uh, Jesse, Jesse Jackson, Jackson, yeah, yeah, in the late '80s, mid '80s, or something like that. And that was the moment that I marked this. Well, actually, let's let's just be honest. Um, the guys at Uncle Tom are working on their new film, Uncle Tom 2, and I think they're doing something spectacular with what they're doing with their film. The social, the, they're bringing out the fact that, um, they probably would not say it like this at all, so I don't want to preface it properly. This is how I see what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, I think they're bringing out the fact that the, um, civil rights movement was compromised from the beginning. Right. It, it wasn't as sanctimonious as some people like to make it. It was compromised from jump, right? So I'm really excited about this because I think they're absolutely right. I don't think they're wrong about that at all. It, is, it was compromised from jump. And so there's a lot of things going on there that have led to a particular type of trajectory. Um, the strength of the black community came from its pastors and its families. Yeah. Those two things. That community in and of itself is what it was. And then that got um, hijacked by the feminist, social, not social, yeah, social justice, Marxist a form yeah. Of, yeah. Um, of government. If you go back and you listen to almost everything that Martin Luther King talked about, he was pushing the idea of we're going to make the government do stuff for us. Right, right. Right. Well, the tradition from black culture from before was we'll do stuff for ourselves because they ain't never going to do nothing for us that don't hurt us at the end of the day. Right. Which was true. Right. Right. And so that turn in the civil rights movement was really a turn for the move of the government to allow black people in so that it can Trojan horse everything else inside of it. Homosexuality, um, 
uh, sexual morality. Do you think that the, I mean, maybe folks at the top, but most most folks didn't realize what the Trojan Trojan horse had inside of it. I don't think so. When yeah. you have people who are hurting, they just um, want help. Yeah, they just right. want out. Um, yeah. And so what they get, they get used and manipulated. This is like, don't trip a blind man. Right. This goes in the same thing. You have people who are in need and who need help and you saw that opportunity and what and you're you going to do is advantage. you yeah. took it to the advantage of those people. You see that with like, you know Al Sharpton to this day. Exactly. You're like, what, what is wrong? What, what are you thinking? Exactly. <laughs> but so I, so I was bringing all that up to say, like, do you think that when you have that kind of move and you have that type of drift, and you see the culture completely changing from the foundations that it came from. How do you still, as a Christian, use that, use, believe in the world that exists in the sense like, I know God is making a joke. Right. I know that this is comedic. Yeah. And though they won't let me speak in it that way, how do you then... Because I think there's some people who want to take and say, well, I'm going to do it in such a way that it, it doesn't have effect to the rhetoric anymore. It's just a smear in your face. Right, right. Right? Instead of saying, you know, I'm actually going to use the rhetoric to be the thing that moves the Overton window and you and the people at the same time. Because I don't think you have to have one or the other. Right. But I could be wrong about that. I think you can absolutely have... I think that the rhetoric is so good. Shakespeare was so good at his craft that he was able to move the American mind for years. Right, right. Years. To the point that people are still doing it. Denzel, right? Yeah. Macbeth, and everybody's the, getting the, it. Right, it. yeah. De Denzel kills it in the new Macbeth. <laughs> don't spoil it. It's not like I don't know what... But, even, but, the, but the new Weezer album that came out last week, the first two songs are about Shakespeare, right? You've got so so Shakespeare. He won, right? He won by being better at it than everyone else, right? He so he he won by being better at the craft, and he he actually brings a full orbed Christian worldview with him everywhere he goes. The metaphysics, yeah. the cosmology, everything. Yeah, and he doesn't he doesn't argue for it. He just shows you how beautiful it is. And so what you have is all these people that you people read Shakespeare. Jane Austen is very similar. They read it, read Jane Austen, and they say, "Oh man, I wish it could be like that again, right? I wish, I wish we could get back to that. That it was so beautiful, right? So he, there's a training of the emotions, a training of the affections of what what you love and what you think is beautiful that happens um, through well-told stories, great poetry, uh, um, great drama that you." can't just get in, in any in a straightforward way so i just come in and say you know what you ought to think is beautiful da, 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 da. you know and that doesn't that's work what we're doing right that's now. what we that's this yeah what we're doing right now. so um facts don't care about your feelings my feelings don't care but, about yeah, your facts and then you and so you end up with this separation of facts and feelings because you don't actually have an understanding of how the world integrates and it, but because it integrates it it, it integrates it's not a series of cold hard facts combined with uh, or or over against um, emotional states. The way we tend to you know, say, well, which one are we going to be? Are we going to be realists or are we going to be romantics? Right? You know, 
because um, that's what you ended up with was this separation into realist, realists, scientific, scientific realism, and romantics, right, at the same time. Because they didn't think that the world could hold together. Whereas when you... But, but it's because it holds together... Um, Between the two of those, it's either, it, the world's it, made either this way or that way. The world can't be made where these two come right. together. They can't come together, but it's because we we don't see that the world actually it, the way that it holds together is as a story, right? So you're when you confront something like the people that are you you know like these people are tearing down the church. They're going after the church or something, and uh, like you see down in uh, you saw during with uh, John MacArthur's. Yeah, yeah. Um, standoff, right? Where he he comes out and speaks to the to the politicians or the sheriff or whatever, and he says, "Well, look, these people are all. I, I can leave them out front. They're coming one way or the other. I can lock them out, and we can meet out here and spill over into the streets, and or I can open the doors and welcome them in." And, I think that's what Jesus wants me to do. I'm going to open the doors. I'm going to welcome them in. They want to be here in the midst of God's people. They're adults. Let them take the. They're they're taking a risk that they think is worth the risk, right? And um, when you see the attack that starts to happen, there's different ways that you can look at it, right? You can look at it and say, "Pause, right? Here in this moment, here is the attack. There's no way you're going to overcome this." They have all of the coercive power. They have all of the thing, right? We don't have the guns. We don't have the um, the the police stations, the jails, right? They have all of those. There's no way we're going to win this when you pause it in the moment. Psalm three tells us though that um, when the enemy digs a pit to trap you, mm. he will fall in it himself, right? Which is funny. Right, it's a joke. God's like, here's the punchline. I'm gonna tell you the punchline in advance. <laughs> right, is that they're gonna fall in the trap themselves, and so then you can sit and watch them build the trap, thinking, oh man, they think, don't have any you idea. Think they're going in head first and knees first, and like, how's that gonna work? You get to laugh at right. the joke from beginning right. to right. end. From beginning to end. Yeah. But it, but it's soon. But it's 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 knowing that the way that it holds together, the way that. God has integrates it is as a story, so it's not integrated as moments of hard fact, or uh, it, with with moments of emotional response. It's integrated in a plot. It's integrated in a narrative and in an arc. This is why. Our, this is why a lot of our. I keep coming back to this. A lot of our exegesis really does suck. Mm-hmm. Because we have no place for that story in how we exegete scripture. Right. So we're always looking for the facts that we can pull out, pinned to the board like dead butterflies. It's a here are all the facts, aren't they beautiful? Like, yeah, those are pretty facts. Those are pretty facts. Yeah. And they're, and they're dead. dead. Right? Yeah. And, Which uh, is why people get discouraged because they don't get a chance to see the living beauty of the facts in reality. So then, you know, when it, it, what it does is create a, um, a suspicious faith. Right. It does. It creates a suspicious faith because you're like, 
those are supposed to fly, and you want me to believe that, and yeah. that's what the facts are. Right. Those those are the facts are. I don't so, see that. And and the, you know you uh, there's there's a but and but here's the thing though. God sometimes comes along and he breathes onto all of our dead butterfly facts. And they start to fly, right? And we keep trying to pin them down. And He's and like, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, the, that's one of the problems of a new convert, right? Or a new Calvinist, too. Is to come along and they're like, this stuff's amazing. And you're like, settle down, settle down. Leave them pinned to the board where they're safe or they don't do any harm. But it's right? got wings! Yeah, it's got wings that can fly. And pretty soon, you know, you, you get... Um, a bunch of old men complaining about the new Calvinists, you know, and you're like, why are you complaining about it? Disciple man? these brothers. Disciple these kids that are so excited. It's like, just because like, God, God breathed on their butterflies and made them fly around and they're enjoying it. It's like, it's, yeah, it's messy and they've got tattoos and all that, and, but just disciple them, like bring them all in. And see, I always, I've always learned from them because they're yeah. they're excited about it. So I've always thought when I saw the young restless and reform groups coming, I have a different perspective on than everybody says. Oh, see, I told you this was going to happen. It went di- wrong. Yeah, we're yeah. wrong because I, I've I've made the argument that the responsibility for the maturity of this group was the mature ones. Right. <laughs> right? So when we went wrong... Good thing we didn't let any of them in, in to be disciples. Because they could have totally messed up wrong. everything. This cathedral and, wasn't built off of recklessness people. Right. right? Yeah. You know what I mean? But here's the thing. Like, you, you hear about the stories of, of Luther meeting with Zwingli and pounding his shoe on the table and refusing to come back to the table. And look, The first Reformation was a disaster. Right? Mm. And God still overturned the world and brought freedom to the nations and all, all of it. And we always brag about yeah, it. Yeah, Matter of fact, we we're, we're reformers. We're right? yeah, sinful reformata, baby. <laughs> right. And then, and then we're like, oh, and a bunch of new Calvinists, and we say, can't trust them. They're not decent and in order. You're like, yeah, like the first time. You remember that? You remember, you, you remember John Owen fleeing across the country, um, barely, barely staying alive because... Uh, of how dangerous and messy and everything. I mean, the the uh, we want we want cold hard facts because we are um, children of the Enlightenment. God gives stories because He is bringing us to reality. So can I, from what I've been learning from our conversations, the reason that stories are important, the reason that poetry is important, because ultimately. Apart from story and poetry, we can't hold things together like we should with the Trinity. Right. Yeah, we can't hold right. facts together that we look at and we say, God says both those are true. How do I... How do I hold these two How paradoxes? do I hold these... Yeah. 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 And, and so we don't have a, um, an armature, right? You know, we, there's a... I can't remember. Brian, what's his uh, name? Yeah. Uh, Brian McDonald. Brian McDonald. Storyteller. Brilliant guy. Yeah. He gets how to tell stories. He's the, he's the one that trained all the Pixar... Storytellers. Exactly. Yeah, the early ones. The early ones, yeah. The good ones. Yeah. Um, and he has this framing that he talks about an armature. And what it basically is is how the old puppets were used to be made. They had to have a frame that they built out in order for everything to hold onto that yeah. frame and to be able to work. And, and so he's like, you, you build the armature and then you put the meat and the bones on it and that's the foundation yeah. of everything that you have. I, I don't think that since we've been talking, I think what I've been noticing, even just with myself, is that my armature 
is is not set up to handle the world the way it actually is. Right. And so I don't know. I've been learning now over the last few years, and particularly in us just talking, man, it's been a blessing, how to have the type of foundation armature that allows the world, like you said, hold together, where it's not just facts and it's not just feelings, but these two things marry together yeah. in such a way that it becomes beautiful, right? Because one without the other, you don't get beauty at the right. end of the day. But as we, I think our last conversation on identity has, you know, really been driving the narrative. Well, we've been talking about this even before that. I wish we had some more of our telephone conversations recorded <laughs> because that's where it really comes out where it's like, oh, this is a Trinitarian problem. And um, I, think, I think two things, Trinitarian problem, symbolic problem. Yeah. And not understanding the purpose of the Lord's table and baptism. So last yeah. week, you know, you really were making the case about like, this is, you know, we were arguing back and forth about what about people who have different positions? How do we get in fellowship? Especially if it's like, and you're like, that's not justification. Like <laughs> right. the bond, the, the, the thing that binds you together with the other bricks in the wall <laughs> is justification. You right. are all justified. That is, and so inside of that, you might be a brick at the bottom or a brick at the top or in the, but justification is the thing that holds it all together. And the, the thing that, I think the Trinity shows us how it all works and from creation on, right? Right. And then, and so I'm trying to figure out how to put this. So you got the Trinity that shows us like um, the ontological realities versus the economic realities, which is what you were just talking about. And then you have experiencing God through symbols. Right. That, well, that you can, that... Is that, that fair to say? Is, yeah. Without sounding like a heretic? No, no. Because... <laughs> The or through that that images can truly communicate. So is and it's something that I I hear Christians deny all the time, right? And it drives me nuts because fundamental reality is that mm, way. Heaven right? declared the glory of God. What even even more fundamental than that, right? Jesus says, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." Mm. Jesus is a symbol. He's an image of the Father. And by seeing the image of the Father in Jesus, you truly have seen the Father. The, the, the poetic nature of knowledge goes all the way down to knowing God. Right? So have I ever have I ever met with the Father? Well, no, I've only met with Jesus. But therefore, I have met with the Father, mm. right? That so when you, if you want to know what the Father is like, you look at Jesus. He is the perfect representation of the Father. He is the Word, and He is the image. Right? He's called both, and He is the that that makes Him the perfect representation of the Father. So if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. That's a that's a fundamental poetic knowledge um, that goes all the way down to the 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 basis of reality, right? The, and a paradox in one way we should be fine with. Right, that we should, well, and we are fine with it as when we're talking Trinity, uh. right? Except for, this is what surprises me, is when you want to, when you say to people, well, how would, how, how does God interact with our sin, right? And, the, and you, and then if, then next you say, well, 
how does Jesus interact with our sin? And you get different answers from mm. people, right? How does God interact with our sin? Well, he's just, he doesn't, he, he's angry, he's, he's frustrated with us, he's embarrassed of us, right? Well, how does, how does Jesus interact with your sin? It was like, well, no, Jesus is loving, he forgives. And how can those two answers be different? They can't be. Mm-hmm. The, um, that is, if you want to know how God interacts with anything, you look at Jesus. Jesus is the full, uh, the the full representation, the the perfect, uh, the the perfect vision of God, right? Jesus is how we know the Father. Jesus is how we know God, right? He is the uh, and Christians will separate God into he here's how he is, and then Jesus here how here's how he is, and they're getting that from the pulpit, right? That is that. And it's because Go ahead. there is they have they don't understand how God communicates Himself to us. Are they trying to hold the Trinity together by economic realities and then splitting ontologically? Is that what they're doing? I think that's I think well I I think they they have lost any sense of what it would be to have an integrated. W- integrated world because the the disintegrated understanding goes all the way down to the trinity or how we understand the trinity everything disintegrated world comes all the way from that so so as if the father and the son are opposed to one another and the father wanted to destroy us but the son came in and rescued us Mm, right they put those two things yeah and and you you hear that interesting you you hear that in bits and pieces, because I because I know because it's you don't find you don't find pastors that teach that on purpose, right? It's an accidental. It's an it's a it's it's because there's something more fundamental underneath in their understanding of uh, of knowledge. I think that actually gets in the way of being able to know that God is revealed himself perfectly in Jesus. And if you want to know what the God is like, you look at Jesus. So, we don't, our social justice, critical race theory, intersectionality, racism, all of our problems that I'm seeing right now in our culture are traced to me back right directly to Christianity to the church, right? Like that's yeah, yep. clearly we talked about this last week. If we can't figure out how to fellowship around the Lord's table and church membership, we're not figuring out critical race theory. Right. We're not figuring out the social justice. We're not figuring out how to fellowship with Christians who have um, different um, perspectives on scripture than we do, right? We, right. we can't right. we can't we can't figure that out. We can't figure that out in the world. We can't figure out politics uh, of how these things can can be together and yet separate, and how to take care of the poor. We can't figure any of this stuff out because we can't figure out just how to fellowship with each other. Right. And so we've had to drill all the way back down to the to the Trinity, and and so here I want to. There's just like there's a couple. So you told me to read this. Now, this is a shame. Calvin's Doctrine of the Word and Sacrament by Ronald Wallace. Now you told me to read this book, but this is the ugliest cover of a book. Yeah, that's pretty bad. That scene. Is it, does yours look like this too? No, mine is just a hardback. But I just got it. So I got that book. I, I photocopied 
that book um, about 20 years ago. It's not that old. Is it not that old? No, no, I'm trying to figure out. Like, yeah. is, is... Well, hey, so I, I heard about it come, when it was first coming out, and I went up to the... What's the copyright on it? 1997, yeah. So That's 20 years ago. <laughs> so, so somewhere around 2002, 2003, I went down to the Gonzaga Library and got a copy of it. And I photocopied it at the Gonzaga Library because I couldn't afford it. <laughs> you photocopied the whole <laughs> thing? Photocopied the entire book. Well, that's some so, commitment. That's, yeah, a, that's a massive can, commitment. So you can, have, um, you can legally have one photocopy of every book if you at the library for for personal purposes, so long as you don't make money off it, it's for research, or whatever. So I oh. went down and I and I photocopied a handful of books, um, and so I had just a photocopied version so you, for years. And then at the Fight Laugh Feast, oh Uncle Gary has uh, some. yeah, and and I was like, oh my gosh, I've never owned this book. I've only had a photocopy. I of saw it. this book it's there. A, it's an older, like more original one yeah, too. It's yeah. like a classic, it's and a, I was like. Yeah. I don't need that. It's, I mean, I know Calvin. I know yeah, Sacrament. Right. I'm so good, I, right? So I snagged it, and I uh, was really excited. Um, but but there's because there's this because this book was major for me in turning my understanding. But the cover's so ugly. Yeah, that's terrible. That's a really bad. I didn't even want, when you told me to get this. I was like, why would I get this book yeah. and read it? I got it because you told me to read it. So I'm right. like, okay, I'll go get it. But the cover is so ugly. I it's never bad. wanted to pick it up and read it. Yeah, the cover doesn't believe what's in the book. That's the problem. <laughs> Facts. Facts. So I got the book. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. What were you saying? Well, just the 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 under the the fundamental understanding of the kind of world we live in. That was the book that opened opened it up for the first time to me. There's so many places I want to read. So I got a couple places highlighted that I thought I didn't. Even, I got past. The, I had to put the book down at points because I got to past the first chapter and I was like I need to go back and read that again and it was he, he was he's not doing any super profound stuff he's just making the stuff that I know come to life right um, and then I realized how he's 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 taking a, a butterfly that's pinned and he's blowing and it's coming to life and you're like oh that's what that butterfly is for that's how it moves yeah I always wondered how and so like it, and it made me think you know, you go to seminary, you learn about the sacraments. It's so wooden. Yeah. Because you learn everything. You, you spend your time learning what the sacraments aren't. right? Because we, we learn it through the controversies surrounding the sacraments. Right. right? Rather than learning it through what, what power did the sacraments bring into the world that transformed the world. Mm. Right? We don't learn that. We learn... Not to be a Roman Catholic. Not you don't to, learn the you, metaphysics yeah, of the yeah, sacrament, right? right? <laughs> yeah, you you learn the errors. You know, and you, don't step in the errors. Yeah, you walk away saying, "Okay, well, not, I should not be an Aristotelian in my sacramental theology." Right? right. That's what we tend to walk away from. Let me let me just read. So I'm going to just read some stuff. So the, the um, this is page five. It says the sign or symbol of God's presence holds the attention of the worshiper and obscures the glory of the one who is seeking to reveal himself by means of it. Calvin calls the ark and the burning bush symbols of the presence of God, but this term can also be applied to the cloud and smoke and the flame and other accompanying phenomena of the Old Testament revelation. And, and so I was thinking, he, he, keeps, he continues to go, but I started thinking like, okay, 
those are, we have symbols in the scripture and we, we look at those and we're like, God was with his people. God was literally with his people. Yeah. And that's God. So we see it in a cloud. We see it. So we're like, that's, that's, that's God. Right. With his people. Real relationship. And then we get into the New Testament and we get into the New Testament church and we come to our modern time and then we don't see, we don't use symbols anymore in that way where that's God with his people. Right. Right. And so where is it? I'm trying to find it here. So, hence we learn that profitable doctrine that wherever, that whenever God grants the token of His presence, He undoubtedly presents with us. He's undoubtedly present with us. He does not amuse us by unmeaning shapes, since therefore the ex exhibition was to deceitfully representation of the presence of God. Isaiah justly declares that he saw God in the representation there, and there is no deception. Right, and this so this is that. Tr that Whoa. trinitarian understanding that an image can truly communicate. Right. So then, so I'm just highlighting stuff. So he said the whole story of the Old Testament is thus the story of how Christ, the Word of God, breaks in upon the life of those whom He has chosen to make His people, and confronts them in these veiled forms through which they can come to know Him, His nature, and have communion with Him. Right. There's a lot that hasn't gone away, though. Mm -mm. No, it's it's only it's actually gotten more so that way, right? That uh, John six, Jesus says, "Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you uh, not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He which comes down from heaven and gives life." into the world, right? He's like, so you got the presence of God in the manna. Remember that? Now, that, now what you're, you're, which God was truly communicating himself to them. I'm with you. I'm taking care of you. Right? You're, I'm feeding you. I, we are communicating. We are communing. In Deuteronomy um, 6 through 8, Moses says, what you should have taken away from the manna and from your hunger when you're in the wilderness, right? You got hungry and God hadn't given you manna yet and you cried out. What you should have said is man does not live by bread alone, right? And then when he provides the manna, then you realize that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, right? So that manna is, uh, the, the, the hunger is a sign from God that you need more than bread, right? Which goes all the way back to the garden. He wakes Adam up. Hey, that hunger pang, it's, it's for me, right? Ultimately, oh, you're hungry because you're made for fellowship with me, ultimately. And then in the wilderness, do, Moses says, remember when we were wandering around and you complained that you were hungry? God's trying to kill us out here. That should have actually communicated to you, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then when he provides the bread of manna, he's providing communion with himself, Right? He's, he's providing a promise that he will always take care of you, not just in the wilderness, but when you're in the land too. Right? That, so all of this is communicating. And then Jesus says, remember that man in the wilderness? That was pointing to me. The ultimate fulfillment, I am the ultimate bread of life. Right? So there's layers and layers of metaphor, layers of poetry, layers of communication that God snowballs into 
communion. <laughs> he snowballs because when Jesus goes out into the wilderness is tempted by the by the devil, he, that's what he quotes. He quotes, "Man shall not live by bread alone," but he quotes what they should have said in the temptation when they were in the wilderness, hungry and tempted about food. Jesus quotes what they should have said, and then he goes out and he talks to the Pharisees and he says, "You know, um, the uh, you know what you really need to do is come over and eat the living bread, which is my flesh." And they say. This is uh, six, John six fifty two. The Jews therefore strove among themselves. How can you, how how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Right, they're they're poetically <laughs> dull. Right, they're like they're poetically dull. Yeah, and, yeah. It, and it's a spiritual problem. Right, their poetic dullness is a spiritual problem at root. Where they have the broken metaphysics of how the world is made and who God is and who God is, right? Right. It, it, he's they, a father that feeds. He's his a children. father that feeds his children, um, and but but the food you know is a feeding of them on himself, right? So this is this is I think this is so I, again I can't this is page three of this book. <laughs> yeah. Now because this book cover is so ugly, I got to say this: ignore the cover. Right. I know it's not Get the worst. The book. Paint the cover whatever you want to that makes you open this book up because you has to. He, so he's this guy. So Wallace is is a Wallace, yeah. Yeah. Is talking as a Calvin. He says, as we cannot attain to that infinite height to which he is exalted, in descending among us by the exercise of his power and grace, he appears as near as is needful, and as limited capacity will bear. He, as it were, veils himself in earthly symbols and placing before the vision of men certain signs which can indicate the humble and believing mind which indicate that the humble and believing mind that he is present such symbols and signs at the same time indirectly represent his hidden being and convey that he and convey what he has to say to man at the moment of revelation so when i so this what this revealed to me when I first read it was that I really thought I I don't want any anything between me and God. I want just him directly with no straight no chase. Straight no chase. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And you read this and you think, oh I'm arrogant. Who do I think I am that I could possibly stand face to face with God and just to, like, like I don't need God to condescend to me. I will go ahead and I'll go up there. I just want the purest right, form. Yeah. Right, right, right. Like, you, right, and you right. realize it's not you don't get the purest form. You get nothing <laughs> that way, right? There's there we, there's nothing in our life that we take in that sort of way. And now, but Plato, he he actually says unless you have knowledge that is direct and without any. Um, without any mediator, right? Direct knowledge, unmediated knowledge. He says, "I you can't even call it real knowledge, right?" And I and I I later came to realize that I had assumed a Platonic understanding of knowledge, a Gnostic understanding of knowledge that you could have that you could somehow have knowledge of God that was direct and unmediated. Well, we're not that kind of creature. Mm. Uh, God who is not a creature, has unmediated knowledge. 
he has knowledge of things directly in their essence. So Plato said, unless I'm God, I don't have any knowledge. But then he said, I can become knowledge, I can become God, right, through the philosophical inquiry, through the proper use of logic and reasoning, I can become God. Right. Well, that's just the same old temptation in the garden. Yeah, it's right? a broken metaphysics we're, too, because we weren't ever designed right. that way, even from we're the not, jump. Yeah, we're not designed to have that kind of Christ knowledge. Christ is walking with us. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 And um, he, but but here's the thing: like you read, so B.B. Warfield, he he says that he doesn't think that Calvin's understanding of the sacraments even make any sense, because it's not knowledge unless it's unmediated direct knowledge, and he believes that God. Through a miraculous, through a miraculous moment of uh, a miraculous act of the Holy Spirit, gives you that kind of knowledge in, in regeneration. <coughs> I think BB Warfield has actually won the debate in American mm. American. No, I think you're right. Absolutely, yeah, American Absolutely. Calvinism. And, no, you're right to our own detriment. And and I mean, what's the pushback? What's the pushback on that? Signs and symbols is that what, that's what we're talking about now? Yeah, well, I think I think the pushback is that's not the kind of world we live in, right? That that you have to blind your eyes to reality, to think that that is what knowledge, true knowledge, is, right? Um, that that uh, we don't have any unmediated knowledge of anything, of of even you know of of uh, well, there's just nothing knowledge-wise that's unmediated. All knowledge is um, poetic knowledge. Symbolic. Symbolic knowledge is, is mediated knowledge. Because that's the and kind of world that we knowledge. live in. That's of... going down to the foundation of what is the world. Well, ultimately, the world is a symbol. And you were saying, that, I think this is where Dante comes yep. in too. When you were talking about um, earlier that the hunger is, that's from me. Even Adam, wake up hungry. Right. Oh, yeah, that's so no, me, right? Get to yeah. know me. The same way when your sexual desires awaken, right? Dante figured that yeah. out too. He's like, "Whoa, that's a beautiful girl. Like, right. how, how do what do I how do I get one of those?" Right. right. And so he had to learn to come to maturity to be able to get one of one of those. Right. right? And, and to realize to, that, that, that point that, that and that that then was a window through which God was actually revealing Himself and His beauty as well, right? I mean, this is one of the things I think that is so destructive about. Um, the the trans transgender movement everything is the beauty of the female form can't be imitated, mm. right? And to think that the beauty of the female form is something that we that is something that you can just you know take some drugs and we can slap on we can put a little slap play. on yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. to think. That's not that's a shallow understanding of how beautiful God made women, right? How the as a vessel of glory, oh, um, it's it that is not a skin deep thing, right? That's not a um, it's it's something that is displayed in the outward beauty, but it but it's not but that's it's not the depth of it, and I think we have. By by making, you know, uh, a guy a guy in a dress, woman of the year, what we're saying is, you know, we think that the value of a woman has to do with you know her long hair and 
and the the shape of her skin or something, right? Well, that's not a biblical understanding of the depth of the beauty and glory of of the of females of women, right? Of who and that's and the way you're getting there. I'm thinking about this is because you're saying that women are an a symbol of God, right? Yeah, right. And so, what is the intent of that symbol in its rawest form is how you get to know the beauty of who God is even more so. And so what you're doing with this is you're corrupting the Imago Dei in such a way that you're missing out on the relationship that it's pointing to. Is right. that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. That, that, that God, you know, God is... I'm is, sorry to interrupt, but I have to because this is what drives me nuts. Whenever... We have, and I don't want to talk about the transgender stuff. I'm going to put that on the shelf right yeah, over here. So yeah. hold this right here. That's the transgender stuff. We're going to put it right there. The way that we have allowed and promoted the false makeup of women in, in makeup, the way that they make themselves up to the way that we are pushing breast surgeries and right. butt surgeries and liposuction. And we're trying to do all these things to exaggerate something that is in itself raw and beautiful has opened up the door to say, if this is something that is malleable, now let's go back to the shelf and grab the transgender stuff, then I can make one right. of those too. Right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> if this is something that is malleable that doesn't have an objective metaphysics, right, then I'll just make me up one of those and I can put on some little plastic and I can do right. this too. We can, we can do the whole thing and we can have a woman. And it's like, no, 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 you, yeah. th this is something much deeper than just that. Right, that, that, Feminine honor, feminine glory, feminine beauty is literally not something that's skin deep, right? It's a, it's an entire, um, it's an entire, so God is the, is to, to put an image of God together. He is, he is so great that it takes more than one person, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. So in one person by themselves is the image of God. Right. But, this, this goes, okay, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. But, right, right, right. Then you put a man and a woman together, and the and in the creation narrative it says the image of God, right? Adam and Eve together, or Adam and Isha at that point. She's not renamed Eve yet. The image of God, right? Two people together, and then they come together, and a third person is born of the power of their love, and <laughs> the image of God, right? So the image. The image of God is not something that you can take a snapshot statically of something in creation and say, got it covered, right? The image of God, because God is infinite, God is infinitely beautiful, mm -hmm. infinitely glorious, infinitely um, great, that the, it, it's something that a man and a woman together making a family over the course of their whole life is beginning to point. point to and reflect, right? <laughs> so so this, it's the story of a man's life and a woman's life and their, their lives coming together and the children and the grandchildren. That, that whole story is the image of God, right? It's not just the, um, you, it's, it's not just a momentary snapshot sort of thing. But, but we, we don't even know. We don't have category for it. Right, and 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 so this is why every tribe, every tongue, yeah. every nation, it gets 
broader and wider and to the point we're trying to fill up the unit because it's God's infinite. Therefore, what it's what we're pointing to is going to take a lot. Yeah. And even then, we're still beginning because it's going to take eternity. Right. <laughs> well, that's the, the history and the story of the whole world is the completion, the filling out of the bride of Christ. This is, and so this is, even that right. itself is a symbol. Even that itself is a symbol, right? So, and, and then your wife is an image of the good and glorious formation of the perfect bride for Christ, right? So when you look at your wife, she is a picture of all of world history, where she's a microcosm of all of church history, moving God, building and moving a bride for, a, a, a worthy bride for Jesus, right? <laughs> Your wife is an image and picture, a, a microcosm of the history of the world, right? So, um, you know, the, we, if, so I was hanging out with, um, uh, uh, Marcus the other day and this guy that we were talking to was a married guy and he, he said something along the lines of oh man look at her over there that's a beautiful woman and Marcus he was like what is wrong with you man you're married right just like just like that yeah <laughs> and, uh, and, and he was but Marcus's response was like it's not even defending his own wife, but it's defending wives as a category, yeah, as a category. right? Like, right. like, what is? Like, right. Do you realize you have a wife that is a microcosm of the history of the bride of Christ, right? Like, um, and and uh, the the our, our, there's no way to think too highly, right? There's no way to think too highly of the calling of wife and mother, right? That is, that's the, the, the microcosm of the history of all things. So, I want to take this back to the table. How is it, um, I'm going to take it back to the table and to the Trinity. I think, I really want to drill down on, I'm trying to figure out a way to make everything flow from the table. I don't think that's, I don't think that's insane to try and do, mm -mm. to make the whole world flow out from what's happening at the table. Yeah. yeah and I'm, I'm mainly seeing unity, but can you kind of walk me through maybe how the world flows out from the table and what we're missing? Not just how we're missing the table, but then what is the table? And then how does it influence the rest of the world? That's a big question. Yeah, it, so, it really is. I don't know where to start and, from. And, well, and what I would say is it all flows out from the pulpit and the table. Right, the word and the sacrament together are the center uh, of the cosmos. Those, those two things those are two not things. So, disconnected. Yeah. Right? So it's so it's not like you know if you have does, does baptism flow in that too? Those are the three things because we only have you know what's the sacraments or yeah. the baptism and so yeah so I would say word and sacrament are the so you have um, you know in the this this is something I think that's really it has helped me to think about it, right? In the ancient cosmologies in Aristotle, you get the old drawings and everything's a perfect circle, right? And so they're always looking for the one center point of all things. Well, once you um, 
what once we got to uh, built our first telescope and you know, what we realized is that actually everything that that the that p- things didn't rotate in perfect circles they rotated in lengthened kind of egg shapes and that there were two centers to everything and uh with a crossed it yeah so yeah so so you have so everything goes around the sun yeah but it doesn't go in a perfect circle it actually goes around the sun plus there's this other invisible point and that the gravitate there are two gravitational centers to all of the rotations of the heavenly planet of, yeah, so of if the you heavenly put a string in the center somewhere and you pushed it in like that oval shape that you're talking about, what you'll get is two places it's, where you see it. Yeah, two two center points, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, here's... Oh, he, oh, that's right. You have the book. Is it Earth, Moon? And yeah, yeah. So, uh, this Earth, one, Moon, Sun, Moon, and Earth. Sun, this Moon. is a brilliant Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant that, that's, book. That, when I started asking you on metaphysics, you were like, here, get this. Yeah, get Actually, you. I think you brought it to me. Yeah, I got, got me. you a copy because it's, it's not easy to get a hold of. So, um, and so... Yeah, there goes the... yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you've got so so the ancient world, they everything had a single center point, and they were all. But then their imaginations was always looking for the single point that held everything together. Well, when as God blessed his people, that and they began to get a better a better understanding of of the actual heavens and how it functioned, you realize that everything actually is two centers, and. Um, we are a reflection of the heavens. The heavens are a reflection of us, right? This we're living in an integrated, integrated metaphorical universe, and so um, the two center points that the cosmos actually revolves around is word and sacrament, right? So, <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> all right. I love what you just did there. I got to break it down real quick because it might have, some people, anybody who's been listening to us talk knows what just happened. But some people don't understand what just happened. You just made theology and something that's totally missing right now where the theology does not touch down on earth. We have theology up here. Yeah. And then we have um, the broke, it's broken from how it actually applies and so people think that they're applying a lot of scriptures and they're not really applying anything. Often, yeah. Yeah, and, and they, you know, and so then you got the other side who's the, who's like, well, I don't need to apply it. It's just gonna do its thing. And it's like, well, no. Let me just show you the way that God made the world is very consistent with how you operate it spiritually, supernaturally, right? Those two things aren't separate. And so just watching you talk about what we see, and that's what this really interesting about this book is what you see. Um, in your theological studies are have representations in one way or another in reality. Those two things yeah. are separate. They're not separate. They're not right. separate. They're very much connected. And that weirds a lot of people out. So that's how you get your biblical exegesis that's grammatical historical. Right. Right. They don't actually hold on to the second or would you say the first Bible that was written, which is creation, right? So the first Bible was written creation. They want to hold on to special revelation, not general revelation. Right. But general revelation is true. It is true. And it's God's book. And we're told they to, harmonize. We're told to look there, right? We're told to expect them to harmonize. And um, and what's interesting, the newer theologians often will write how they don't harmonize. Right. Right. That when you see the creation by itself without the revelation of the word of God, then you expect God to be harsh and you expect God to be all this. Well, they're they're actually because it's disconnected from the world. The, right? Yeah, right. So so that that 
general revelation only reveals the con- condemning, uh, a con- reveals a condemning God if it re- you know if it reveals anything. That's because they've swallowed Darwinism. <laughs> Darwinism oh, okay. reveals a condemning God, right? Because Darwin is because God is a giant grinding death monger. That's a trinic- That's also a, a monolithic problem. Mm-hmm. That's not yeah that, monotheism. Monotheism. Yeah. That's what that is. So you're missing out on a trinitarian understanding. Yeah. This is so helpful. So any here, any here, monadic. Here. Right. It, yeah. Delight in the Trinity. This is another one. These two. These two books right here. Any monadic essential for Christian. God, you end up with yeah. So because what was God doing from all eternity? He was being a father. Right. Loving the Son. Right. And the Spirit going between them. So that is what creation is the symbol of. Right. Right. right? A father loving his son and the Spirit going between them. Right, and that's anyway. Okay, we we'll have to go there, but that that is so important to see how, for me anyway, to see how the world actually works and operate operates, and how God's word is in harmony with that. Right, revealing more, being a symbol, revealing more about who He is. Right, so you get the you get the details, some of the details that aren't communicated in the symbols. Um, Right, right, but. The symbols truly do communicate, right? And it's kind so, of a movie in the behind the scenes. Yeah, and right. that, that's one of the things I love about um, Calvin's Institutes is, is he calls the world the theater of God's glory, right? That's the nature of the kind of creation we live in. He says it's the theater of God's glory. So what we should expect is to to see God God's glory, right? So he talks about the um, the that that you that if you are studying creation truly then you should expect a gracious god right? you should expect a loving god when you when you find him now you you can't find him anywhere but in christ right. right that's where he has fully and completely revealed himself but he sets your expectations to um now now sin has a, a, a noetic effect calvin calls it right it touches everything and it bends everything right so our experience of creation and our interpretation of creation is often bent by our sin mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but creation truly teaches us to expect a gracious god right because the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike mm. right um the sun is out right, right the sun is out it's right. beautiful right um even you know, we, we have a planet that gives us food right like that's a that that one messed me up god made the world in such a way that men are on a planet that gives them it's not an accident yeah, like right. we don't have that on mars we don't have that in, like, yeah. from what we can tell right now the only planet we have that on is this is one is this one right and so when when elon musk talks about maybe we should nuke the poles of mars and see if we can turn it into a planet that gives food he misses he, well he he's he's looking he's saying i mean there's something i think intriguing about the way he thinks cuz he looks at it and he says I wonder what secrets there are. What's that symbol? Yeah. I, I wonder if we blew up the poles, if we could, is there a way? Like there might be some sort of secret hidden way to turn Mars into a place that also gives food, right? Well, then you think like that because you're thinking about the treasures that God has placed inside of yeah. planet Earth and be like, what? what right. Are the, the, you start to expect the other planets to have, and then you look and you're like, what? It's not there. 
It's got to be there, though, right? Like, right. Right, there's a what a, are these for? Way Add of, the metaphysical <laughs> question, right? What is it? What, what, is, is, it for? what is Mars for? It's got to be there. You know, so so I think there's something interesting, intriguing about the question. Now, whether yeah. or not I, I haven't studied yeah. the physics, the math to know if that is a good idea or a bad idea, but. Um, I don't no, think but I think we could. planets is a good idea. Yet. Well, yeah, it's, well, he's not thinking of destroying it. He's thinking there's ice caps on, right, on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we suddenly melt them, can we create a? Can we create? So what? Because what we have is gravity holds in the air. Yep. Um, you know whatever gravity is, it's a mysterious force. Um, but it holds another symbol. Another symbol, right? <laughs> it, but it, it holds in the atmosphere. Yeah. If and so he's wondering. Could we get enough water into an atmosphere to make Mars into and and you know, nuke, nuking the ice might get enough water into the atmosphere that it could create the layer that you need for life to exist? I don't know if that's interesting. It's, a, it's, it's an interesting. Thought. It's an intriguing thought. Um, and the but the and and the we should be expecting the to look to look at Mars and think and it's the right question to ask. How can we serve people with that thing? Mm. Right? That planet should have a purpose wherein we can serve people, right? And perhaps it's just the beauty of it and the 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 poetic servitude and the, you know, all that. That's, we, how, that's why metaphysics is so important. What is it what is it for? Right, what is it and what it it's tells for? us what to do with it, right? So um You gotta figure out how to define what a woman is first. <laughs> right. So but um but so <coughs> what was the original question? I started talking about Elon Musk. We, so we have um, the the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God, and so um, but but the, you know creation does that all over the place, and so we should be expecting to find it that way. Calvin even talks about the mystery of food itself. Right? He says you look at food and you think, how does that work? How does that give us life? It's a dead thing, and it's giving us life somehow. There's something mysterious. In all food, um, that that when we come to it with an, with a true understanding, it should show us our utter dependency upon God as created beings. Two fixed points. Is what you're talking yeah. About. So so the two so the two fixed points then um, are word and sacrament, and all of our interactions with God then you know are rotating around. Word and sacrament all the time. God continually speaks. He's continually present with us in his voice. Um, he, I mean, the, this whole thing is made of his words. Everything we are, everything that is, is created. And he, so he didn't just speak and then walk away. He's continually speaking. Uh, Jonathan Edwards calls it the doctrine of constant creation. Right? That we are... How's he continually speaking? Um, so... Uh, so Jonathan Edwards was interacting with the deists who said God created this thing, wound it up, and let it go. Right. And he said, no, we're not at a distance from God. We're actually just as close to God now as the creation was as God spoke it into existence because this place is God's story that he is continually speaking. Mm. Right. So we're made of words, but we're not made of words in a momentary sense. We're made of words the way a, any story that I tell is made of my words. Right? We are God's story 
and he is continually speaking us into existence. He's continually speaking us, continually speaking this place. Right? God is a story. So God spoke us into existence, but not as a, not the way, um, not in a way that ends up separate from him. Where right? he spoke, spoke us into existence the way a storyteller says, once upon a time. The story has been spoken into he's, existence. He's telling it and now he is telling this whole story. So we are as close to God in this moment as Adam was when God breathed into his nostrils, Ed, yeah, that, Edward you know, says. That's interesting. So then, you know, I still think there's a... So the two fixed points you said, a word of sacrament. Yeah. And they tell us or symbolize for us the relationship that we have with God. Yeah, so the word <coughs> is not so, um, and, you know, it's like when, when Schaefer says um, he is there and he is not silent, right? Yeah, that's, right, the, right. that's the God we serve is not a silent God, a distant God. Well, he's also a God who keeps covenant, a God who created us for fellowship and then is insistent, is constantly pursuing us and bringing us back, right? We Flee, reciprocal relationship that you yeah, were talking this about. Reciprocal last. relationship, and in in the sacraments is is the the place where that relationship um, is is signed and sealed and kept up. You know, um, is is kept kept active, right? So in baptism, God puts His name on us. That's the mark. Right, that's the mark. He said, so what, um, you know, the second commandment is do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Right? And we tend to think that's the don't swear verse rather than the don't be a hypocrite command. Is right? that really what's going on it's there? really are what's are going both on, of them, right? Are both of them at play? Both, yeah, both of them are at play, but it's we don't take the name, that God has put right. his name on us. Because see, don't rappers, carry it in yeah. a vain way or in a way that where. The inside of our act of our actions doesn't match the outside. I've seen. Uh, I'm thinking of right now uh, of uh, Nick Cannon, who like is adamant, like man, don't don't be saying God's name in vain. I was like, and, and you know, when you think about it, it's like right, and don't live like His name is in vain either, right? Like those two things should go together the same way. <coughs> it's because I see a lot of people very comfortable with saying, hey, 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 we take His name in vain, right? Yeah. And then their lifestyle is all it is is right. taking His name in right. vain. Yeah, so we have a, and that's a, that's a, tends to be a pharisaical problem where you latch on to one, one or two sins, say, so long as I don't do those ones, you know, I'm good. Those, right. those, those, those things become the external markers rather than faith, right? Faith is the marker. Faith mm. is the mark. Um, and the, and the, but this is where it always comes down to what, what is faith then? Right, faith. So, just gonna ask you. Yeah. I feel like I should. I meth left one book, which is Jay uh, Gershon Machen's book. Yeah, what is, what is faith? faith? By, yeah, what is faith? It's a great book, right? Because that, because that's the question. What is faith? We, the word faith is thrown around all the, t- yeah. all over the place. You gotta have faith. You gotta, you. but, um, faith is believing in God's promises. Eh, I need a deeper definition than that. <laughs> You know, that's how, that's how, that's, since we've been talking, the only thing that has solved metaphysical problems for me that I've, that I've had is like, oh, John Knox book. 
Squirrel uh, <laughs> is the fact that I feel like faith, baptism, Lord's Supper have been the trinity of brokenness. Yeah. And how I understand the world. Right. Right. Um, because I've made faith something that is more supernatural than it is foundational as this, this right. glass right here. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, right? For whatever reason, that not seen part really gets us excited. <laughs> and so everybody, especially charismatic world, and even like I, I got, if it's something that we conjure up, right? And we got all wrapped up. And so I got this faith thing and it's not what it is. Yeah. You know? It's, it's a, it's a, and this is what's difficult is because, you know, presumption is when you believe something God hasn't promised, as if he has, right? You live according to something God hasn't promised. Um, faithlessness is when God promises something and you refuse to believe it. You refuse to live according to it. Like infant baptism. <laughs> You're always trying to get me in trouble. But, but I do think, I mean, that is the question, right? Yeah. Has God promised us our children? Oh, absolutely. Can you raise your kids by faith? Absolutely. Right. So I think every good I think every good Christian does whether they submit. Right. To that yeah. Well, which, I, is, I, which is the argument, which is like. So, so it was um, it was a Baptist that explained to me the promises that God has given us to our children, right? So this Baptist was explaining, and he actually uh, put it in a little pamphlet. You know, God's God's promises to our children. And so God promises us our children. And so, but how do you get hold of promises? By faith, mm. right? You trust them, right? You, not by works. And so we are either raising our kids by faith or by works. Those are the options. If God has promised us our children, then we can raise them by faith. If we don't have promises, then we're screwed, right? You can't do anything um, where we live by faith from first to last, everything depends upon whether or not God has promised it or not, right? And so, if God has promised us our children, then we raise our children by faith and not by works. Now, like James says, show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works, right? The works will flow out of faith, but it's but the works don't then turn around and become the reason that God right. saves, right? That that God saves by grace by Jesus alone uh, and we live by faith we trust him that's that's what it looks like but it comes down to whether or not there are promises there right so if there are no promises for our children then infant baptism is presumption mm -hmm. if there are promises for our children then Baptists are Pharisees trying to raise their kids by works right mm. now that's like broad strokes, obviously, because oh, there are Baptists that raise their kids by faith. There are Pado Baptists that raise their kids by works. Yep, um, that's right. And, I've seen both ways. Right, yeah. So, and that's why I praise a lot of my Baptist brothers who are raising their kids, because I've been to their houses, and I'm like, you raising that by faith. Right. You might as well put some water on it, because <laughs> you're just doing it by faith. But, and, and this is where the nature of the sacraments comes in. Mm. So if the, the sacraments are signs and seals of the promises of God, the general promises of God to individuals, then it makes sense 
if there are promises about this child, to then apply the the uh, the the baptism to the child, right? Because the baptism is the promises of the general promises of God to His people, attached uh, being attached to an individual. It's the general name of God that He says, "You are my people. You have my last name." Right? You are Christians. Right? That um, it's like you know. My, I'm my father's son, and so I'm a Farley, right? That's my, um, his name is on me. The, the Farley name is, I carry it around everywhere I go. Well, God has put his name on his people, generally speaking. In, the, in baptism, his name is being put specifically on this person, this individual. So um, Calvin, in one of his essays in, uh, I think it's in Ecclesiastical Advice, he says... You might think that the pastor's words preached generally to the congregation are meant for someone else. But when you chew and swallow the bread and the wine, you know that that declaration of God's love is to you as an individual. Right? It, the sacraments take the general promises of God to his people and individuate them, individualize them to this particular person. Right? And so... The, that, that's why you can't have the Lord's Supper without a sermon. And without a sermon, or without the Lord's Supper, the sermon actually changes what it is. Right? It's not the same, it's not the same so, act in the world without the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper personalizes that sermon that you heard generally preached. It becomes to you as an individual. The, every promise of God that was declared in that sermon, every declaration of love that was declared in that sermon to, to the world in general is declared specifically to you that, um, in the eating and drinking of the Lord's Supper. So, or sealed specifically to you. If you really want to change the world and you see the problems in the world that we're having, First thing we need to do is have the Lord's Supper every week. I mean, I think that's a really good start. Right. That's, yeah. like, that's, so a, going that's to, a really good we're, we're drilling yeah. down on foundational pieces, right? Like, yeah. Because what you just said to me... Um, and Calvin argues for weekly communion. So I, there's, a, there's a history. It's not as if you're not being a revolutionary by so wanting... Like, but that's not a hard. That's not a hard place to start either. Kind of like pulling your kids out of government schools. It's not a hard place to start in exercising freedom. Yeah. Right? It's pretty simple. Right. It's challenging. It has some effort that you have to put towards it. But it's not a. It's not a hard place to start. Um, what is happening? How does the table communicate to us? So you got. So here's two things. You have these two center points: word and sacrament. When you're having word and no sacrament you're missing out on the second center point right so then you're off balance yeah you get wobbly you get wobbly yeah that's a great way to put it you get wobbly yeah kitty wampus um how is it when you align those two you have those two centers word and sacrament something happens where the ten the, the metaphysical realities that are practiced at church on sunday start broadening out to the rest of the world because that's the preaching of the word in one way or another is absolutely foundational, but the two married together take something that's not just up here, but it becomes very physical to us. We are actually eating of the very thing we just yeah. heard, right? <laughs> right? Right. Right. And so that those have 
those have effects. How do you, what, what is that? What does the word and sacrament then communicate to us about our identity, right? Because that's where we're trying to get to so that we can say, okay, we got the foundations of the Trinity of who God is and the kind of world that that God makes, a loving father makes. And then this is how we are brought into relationship with him through Christ that we taste every week. That marks us as a certain type of being. Right that interacts with other beings in fellowship and those out of fellowship? What, right? how, if, how does the table start to interact and mess around with the, with the world and people and individuals? So why is that such a central point to, the, to how we engage with critical race theory or social justice right, or other right. things, right? Why spend all your time talking about the Trinity, the word and sacrament? Right? Like, yeah. As a central and point. Justification, and justification by faith by alone. Faith alone as identity markers. Yeah. So, and and here's here's where you it you have you can't think like a gnostic, right? If you because because you you think well I know if I know the promises of God what's what's added by eating and drinking bread and wine, right? I know them already. What there's no so what is added by that. And you, um, yeah, because all they are are pieces of doctrines that I need to have to be orthodox. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I'm totally orthodox. Yeah. What, yeah. Um, there's and there's it, because it's a the table is a whole world in and of itself, right? That the table is this microcosm of history, right? Uh, that's if we look at the way Paul describes it, like um, the table is a microcosm of history, right? The whole world. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Mm -hmm. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this as my memorial, or in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do ye, you all, as often as you all drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this cup, or eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death till he comes, right? So the table pulls from the past, it pulls the, the crucifixion into the present, and then it pulls the future, when the return of Christ, into the present as well, right? So you've got the table becomes this center point, center point where the past and the future are actually pulled into the present by faith, right? So... No matter which time and space and history you yeah, are. No matter where you are, you are reminded. So that's, a, that's a unique point in time and space, though, too, though, right? So, But the table is also pointing back to the Passover. Pointing back to the Passover? I think it's pointing back more specifically to the peace offering. Oh, okay. right? So the peace offering, which is the last of the... So you have a whole series of sacrifices done in a row. You've got the sin offering, the burnt offering. the um, so, um, And then the peace offering is bread and wine after, and the bread is broken into three pieces. Some's given to the priest, some's given to the family, some's dropped into the fire and is you know, eaten by God in the fire. And then you take the wine and you dump it into the, you, you dump it out. You're not allowed to drink it in the old covenant. The new covenant, the peace offering becomes the bread and the wine, but now you get to drink the wine. And so there's this, I think there's a transformation of the peace offering. The Passover is, um, 
the Passover is sort of all of the um, all of the sacrifices before they're broken out and given more yeah, that's, specificity. I've always, so, I've always felt like that yeah. was like, okay, this is infantile, yeah. you guys. Okay, here's what you're going to do. Right, so you've got the Passover as this beginning of the Jewish sacrament, sacramental system, the Mosaic yeah. sacramental system. Now you've got Abraham has a sacrament, sacramental system. Noah has a sacramental system. Um, the Garden of Eden, all the way back to there, I think there's a sacramental yeah. system. And so, um, but and and as they develop, you get more and more broken out and explained. Right, detail. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you don't get the details of why things happen until way later. So you you know the we're told the priest is supposed to wear a particular kind of of garment. It's light flowing white garment that they wear it's not and they're not supposed to wear wool well you don't it's not until ezekiel comes along and says oh yeah let me explain to you that that's because wool causes you to sweat and sweat is a symbol of the curse right so so um there's a historical development that the whole thing is about right i think i um i sent you uh uh John Denver song this week, yeah. not Gnosticism. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, he's he's talking. He talks about. Um, well, no, you first. You got to tell the full story. Of that <laughs> first, you sent me a song. We'll bust you out uh, by uh, Nas. Nas. Yeah, and you were well, like Gnosticism. Ill, Illmatic. <laughs> Illmatic <laughs> by Nas. <laughs> yeah. That I turned on because I, I haven't listened to Illmatic in a long time. I turned on my kids like whoa. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Illmatic by Nas. Much Gnosticism as possible. Yeah. Right. It was right. fully loaded. Fully Gnosticism. straight Gnosticism. He's yeah. he's a real gifted poet. Yeah. Right? He's really gifted with words. But yeah, very Gnostic. It's funny because you don't realize how n- poetry helps you understand the reality of the world you're living in. And when your poets are Gnostics, it yeah. tells you that's the running narrative. Right. right. And and so much so that even the people who want to correct Nas are using Gnosticism to correct them. <laughs> right. Which is, which is like what's really weird. Anyway, so then you sent yeah. me John Denver. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think I sent you in between. Uh, there was another one. I, yeah. w- I wish. I um, wish. Yeah. yeah. I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a little bit taller. So that whole taller. album is fantastic. That, but it's not Gnostic. Not Gnostic. Right. right. It's, um, and it's, it's funny and all. But, but then I sent you the John Denver one, and, and it's comparing um, time. He's comparing the time that his life has passed to the uh, the life cycle of grape and juice and wine, mm. right? So as he's getting older, um, his life he's realizing that it took time to get to the wine in life, right? So uh, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful, yeah, yeah. It's right? be- it's symbol and it's but it's this beautiful poem. Um, and it's funny because John Denver died fairly young, and so he's imagining. It, into the future what it's going to be like to get there someday where but the but if time is an enemy um we're dealing as gnostics right if time is so you know in the ancient world uh chronos the god of time he's the devouring god right chronos eats everything destroys everything or he eats his own children um he and he's the he's the god that had to be overcome uh, by so he's the titan that had to be overcome. He, so uh, the the eternal gods, uh, the, which is the second layer of gods in the pantheon of Greece, they exist because they destroyed Kronos, 
They destroyed time. Time was the enemy. And um, we often tend to still think that way because we think like Gnostics, right? That we need an eternal moment uh, that, we're, that, that pauses, right? And time is the enemy. Whereas if time is the thing that brings maturity and development and a greater love and a greater understanding and a greater, a greater life, um, then time no longer is an enemy. Time is a friend. Time is something that you embrace. Time can't be a friend if you're going to lose everything if it keeps going. Right. And so that's Gnostic? So, well, yeah, so that's, that's Gnosticism, is that you've got to be freed from history. History is an enemy. History is a, is a, is it's a acting prison. acting on you. Yeah. And the same, this is where Schlossberg, what's his name? Yeah. Uh, is that right? Uh, yep. Idols for Destruction. By the way, that was written in the 80s, I think it was. Yeah, late 70s even, maybe. Something like what? A oh, long time God. ago. He's like, he's writing right now. Yeah. <laughs> but so then if time... He's, he's the prophet that we rejected because of... I think we do think of time as an enemy, the way that we, not just in the, what we say, but how we actually operate. Mm -hmm. Like we operate as if time is an enemy. We're, we're always trying to stay as young as possible and stay, you know. Well, that's, yeah. Even our pictures, we take pictures because we want to remember a moment because it's going to be gone. It won't be here anymore. Right. But, so, I guess how, how is, since cause time is acting on you, it is an enemy that is taking something from you and you can't control it? Is that what it is? Uh, well, yeah, I think so. It, it's, it is, it, it, to embrace time is to embrace my own limitations, mm. right? Is to tell you you're not God. Yeah, is to embrace the fact that you're not God. And that's, I mean, the entire first half of Ecclesiastes is Solomon saying, your limitations are a blessing. Your limitations are a blessing. Your limitations are a blessing. Right? That, mm. that the true joy is found in the embrace of our limitations, in the, in the rejoicing in our limitations. When we quit trying to be God, we can actually enjoy our life. Right? Our, our life becomes small. It becomes unimportant. It becomes little. And it be, but it suddenly becomes something that can be enjoyed. It's not what social media is telling me right now. And there's nothing in the culture is telling me that. Right. Except for the sun going up. Sun going down. The mirror is the only thing that points that out to me. Yeah, and I, like that's and the moments I guess in life. So the, the metaphysical realities of that are still there, but there's a wrong story that's trying to influence that that reality. Right, right. right. So it's interesting. Yeah, and so we have this, um, but but then the the supper is a huge reset of of this understanding of time, right? Because the, um, the, I mean, everything about it, right? It pulls the death of Christ into the present, right? Not by a re-crucifying, uh, but, but in a poetic way. It pulls the future, uh, where it's all headed, right? The return of Christ when he puts all things right, and then the, the, med the, the wedding supper of the Lamb is celebrated, right? It becomes appetizer, an appetizer for the wedding supper of the lamb, right? You remember, oh yeah, this is where it's all headed. <coughs> the wine on the table um, is is the is fruit brought to maturity, right? Fruit brought to mm. wisdom. Um, you in the in the Garden of Eden, all they had was just fruit directly off the tree, right? Um, 
but now the fruit God gives us is matured. It's brought to its where it's it's brought to where we're being brought right to maturity. So um, it, it, it's a celebration, right? You're in the middle. It, it reminds you that you're in a comedy, right? That you're not in a tragedy. Right? That this story that you're in that um, has you can there's there's always that's this it's one of the reasons that there's always room for humor in a christian understanding right i mean this is what dc doesn't understand this is why dc movies aren't enjoyable because they take the conflict so seriously that there's no room for jokes anymore and this is what the you know the avengers movies get like yeah okay the world's about to die but there's always time for a joke there's always room for a joke right because we live in a comedy right so even the even the biggest conflict um on your left yeah exactly <laughs> right? the, even in the midst of the biggest conflict but um, what a joke setup what a setup though right right oh yeah all of a sudden you know that's a oh i gotta pause for a second that's so good so you have this battle where the avengers finally get the world restored back whole thing falls apart now because Thanos comes and blows up their spot Thanos is about to put it right back to the place it just was. Sounds like an Israel story almost, yeah. right? And so the Avengers just lost a huge battle. And, you know, Captain America is sitting there fighting the last thing tooth and nail is him against, it's Athanasius actually. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's the rest of the world. And all of a sudden, you know, the joke that came before where Captain America is running right. around and From passing, Winter Soldier, from like, Winter, yeah, yeah. what, 10 movies previous. <laughs> on your left, on your left. And, no one had to go back and watch the movie. No one had to go back and figure out when he heard that go off in his ear and say, on your left, everybody knew. <laughs> exactly. There's only yeah. been a few times in the theater where I heard applause or cheering. Yeah. Like, you know. People jump out of their chairs. People jump out of their yeah. chairs and everybody high-fiving. It was, it was one of those weird moments where I, I remember people like, oh, wow, you know. Yeah. And, and, and so that's the story that God is telling right. the same way. Right, right. Like, and, on your left, it's oh, yeah, the comedy. It's, it's, that was a joke then, right? It was a right. joke then. It's like on your left, and like here it is now. The joke is back in the most perilous time of the whole scene. Right, and then what it does. So what a good punchline does is it goes back and it actually it actually works in reverse back to the earlier words and it changes the meaning, right? right. And so we right. and we've been told the punchline in advance, right? And so now. All of these things, you know, you go through, you go through difficulties where you just don't have enough money, right? And you're like, okay, Lord, this is hard. I don't get it. But I know that this is, like, there's a resurrection coming, right? I know what kind of story I'm in. I, I don't, but like right now, I'm in that straight man part. Right, and I, but I know when it comes, and so we, and we'll say this, I'll laugh about it someday, right? And we'll say that, and we know that, that because we know what kind of world we live in, and when you get to the punchline, you come back and these things have changed their meanings, mm. right? The, the punchline works in reverse and comes back and changes, uh, uh, the, it changes the meaning of all of the moments that you have gone through. And the table is a reminder of that coming punchline. Right, so the table ends up becoming this thing where it you you get to Sunday and you have the Lord's Supper and you're like, okay, wait, let me think back through this week and put it into its proper perspective. 
right? How do I, how does this punchline change the meaning of the, the things that I've gone through this week? And sometimes it's, sometimes it, you're not there yet, right? Sometimes it's still just, no, I'm drinking the, I'm drinking the wine like Noah because the world just died. <laughs> right? mm. And then you, you haven't gotten to the point where you can look back um, and, and laugh yet, but, you're, but it's a reminder that that day is coming. Right, you're having appetizers for the wedding supper of the lamb. When you retell the whole history of the world in its proper perspective, and now you get all of the jokes. Right, that day is coming, and we're always looking for how do you, how you, know, how do you, how do you get to it sooner? And sometimes there's just not a way to get to it sooner. So then that is in the. <coughs> that seems like okay. That's future pointing future. How does that work out in present with our current situation that we're facing right now culturally? So yeah, so that because uh, the other thing that it does is it seals to us, it signs and seals to us the promises of God, which is so that we can live by faith in the present, right? So because living by faith is living according to the promises of God. Okay, so this is where I, so I know, and so would you just I want you to finish working that out, but this is what I've been thinking about ever since we've been talking about, um, you know, I hit you up on the phone and asked you about. Globalism, what is globalism? And this is when it cr- you cracked it open for me when you were like, globalism is a Trinitarian heresy, right? You got uh, international socialism, you got national socialism, right? Yep. <laughs> um, and when you start working through that, if, you know, if there's anybody listening to go back and listen to that show, that show does not have enough listens on as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and it's the shortest one we've ever done. How does the shortest yeah. show that we've ever done have not have as many listens? It's like 25 minutes or 28 minutes or something like that. That should be the one that just blows up. That show, that was on accident because I just called you as I got to record this. I'm heading to the studio. Um, but uh, the, so the local, the Trinitarian heresy inside of globalism is the ontological realities and economic realities can't exist. What I'm seeing though is everybody sees globalism as a problem, one world order as a problem. Right. They're seeing Marxism as a problem. They see the fruit of those things. They're tasting all of them. And so people will say things like, we got to fight China because China's a problem. Even the people that are socialists right. are saying that about yeah. China because they, they like um, uh, national socialism, but they ain't so fun right. as international, international socialism, socialism, right? That's a threat. Right, that's a threat yeah. because then I don't get to be the god of the system. Right? That's a problem. <laughs> I want to be the god. And so... You have this weird kind of battle there, and then you have the other people, like Christians and conservatives, who are saying, we have to fight against China, so then let's create, this thing, they are saying it like this, but this is what they're doing, let's create a form of Marxist socialism ourselves, like we did in World War One and World War right. Two, in order to be able to fight against these globalistic powers. Yeah, we've got to get powerful enough. Yeah, so basically to... national socialism needs to beat out international socialism, because right. of international socialism is when we're done, right? But we don't have a problem with socialism, yeah. Ultimately, right? or a national, um, um, yeah. I think I said that. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, I want to be thinking about. So, how do you beat out China? And this goes all back to what we were just talking about. We said faith is believing God promises. Our the promises. The way that I've been thinking about this is that the promises that God has given us need to first start in these, the the closest spheres that we have to us that right. we have operation. Self-government, our family government, 
and from there our church government onto the civil magistrate. You create the freest, most joyful home and family that you possibly can. First of all, you act that way to yourself. You right. free yourself from your sin, right? You got to fight your sin. You got to go to war with that first. And if you don't go to war with your own sin, you can't do that with your family. It's impossible. But creating a genuinely joyful, ruckus, happy family is the only way that you beat nas national and international socialism. Right. And Mark, you don't beat it any other way. No. You have to create a free, this is just speaking generally now, you have to create the freest society in order to beat the enslaved society. Right. It doesn't work the other right. way. But you have to be free first yourself. God had to take his people out of Egypt and then get the Egypt out of them before they get to a promised right. land, right? Be because Machiavelli was not right about the nature, Thank about you. the malleable nature of reality, right? So. You know, we've, we've talked about this, but Machiavelli said, if we can get enough power into one, one spot, place, yeah. we can transform reality, right? And that's socialism. So socialism says we can, we can transform reality if we get enough power collected into one spot. Right? Then we can transform reality. We can transform human nature. We can transform economic, economic realities. We, we can make the world not a covenantally bound place anymore. Mm. Make it into something else. It's <coughs> so important. It oh. is. But the world is a covenantally bound place. And so that's how um, you know, the... Have we talked about Polycarp? I'm trying to remember. No, I don't think... Not very much. Not I very mean, much. I know. We've talked about We've Poly talked about Polycarp, yeah, yeah. but... so Remind me again. <laughs> so Polycarp, um, he's in Roman Empire. There's a there, There's really ten... Ten major persecutions, waves of persecution, and Polycarp gets caught up in one of them. He's in his 80s, and he is well known as a pastor of uh, in in a um, in the in uh, a Roman city, and they have uh, they it's it's a city that's large enough to have a coliseum where they throw people to the lions, and. Um, Polycarp's assistant pastor is a man named Germanicus, and he's uh, in during the persecution. He's arrested and he's brought in and he's fed to the lions. Well, the problem is they've been feeding people to the lions all day, and the lions weren't hungry anymore. And so Germanicus, they throw him down there and they broke one of his legs in the process, and he starts crawling, um, and. Everybody thinks that he's confused because he's crawling towards the lions, um, and the all all of the people are laughing and you know they're looking at Germanicus and he pulls himself right up to one of the big lions with the the mane and he reaches up and he grabs the lion by the side of the mane, the lion roars and he shoves his head inside this lion's mouth, the lion clamps down and kills Germanicus. And the place just goes silent because they'd never seen anything like that. Like, this guy was thrown to the lions and usually people run away from the lions. And he and he was like, Lord, you threw me to the lions and the lions... He was like so excited to be a martyr and the lions aren't hungry. And so he crawls over to the lions. And he's like, hey, lions, don't you know why we're here? Yeah, I'm going to be a good hero. I'm going to be a good hero. Like, yeah. I'm, this is what you sent me for. I get my role in this 
in this story. And so he and City crawls over to the lions. And the place, it goes silent, and then it like, bursts in. And they start chanting, uh, send for Polycarp, send for Polycarp, right? If the assistant pastor gets us this kind of thing, what about the, pa- the pastor? But Polycarp's in his 80s, though. And you know, it's back when the, there wasn't a separate police and an army, so they send out the army for Polycarp. Um, and they get, they get to Polycarp, and uh, he's, he had heard that, that they were coming for him, and so he starts preparing lunch, and these soldiers show up. And, uh, and he says, oh, I'm glad you're here. I've been making lunch for you. And they sit down to lunch, and they said, oh, thank you so much. What, uh, we're actually looking for Polycarp. Do you know where he is? And he's like, oh, no, that's me. I knew you were looking for me. And I wanted to make sure you guys were well-fed before you arrested me. And so he feeds them lunch, and then they arrest him. They bring him back in a cart, and uh, you know because he's eighty years old, they can't walk him all the way there. Well, the the uh, the head uh, soldier when they get there says, "Look, Polycarp, all you got to do is deny Christ, and you'll live." And he says, uh, "No, thank you. I would rather not deny Christ." And he says, "You're an old man. What's the big deal? Just deny Christ." And I said, I'm trying to have compassion on you. And Polycarp says, I'm not going to be taking your advice. Please just lead me in. And the man yanks him down and he and um, tw- you know, twists his ankle out of joint. Uh, and, and so <laughs> Polycarp has to limp in to go stand before the governor of the whole area. And the governor says, Polycarp, I'm... I'm I, I'm going to give you an opportunity to be saved. Deny Christ, and I won't kill you. And he says, Governor, I'm glad you're, you've brought me here. I'm here to give you an opportunity to be, to be saved. Repent of your sins, and you can uh, avoid an eternity in hell. <laughs> and he says, Do you know who I'm in? I'm the one that holds your, uh, your life in my hands. And he says, No, Christ holds my life in his hands, and he has never done me any harm for 80 years. Mm. So why would I deny him now? Right? And he says, uh, and he says, just admit that, ad, ad, admit that uh, Christ hasn't protected you and, and, uh, um, and, and something along the lines of, you know, say, say, uh, um, oh, because they, the Christians were accused of atheism because they didn't believe in the pantheon. And he says, just say away with the atheists. And, um, and that's all it will take. And he turns to the crowd and he says, away with the atheists to the crowd. And now the governor is just angry as all get out. And he says, don't you understand who I am? And he says, I understand who you are. You're a man that is going to stand before Jesus someday and be judged. And you right now have the opportunity to set a time so that I can explain to you the gospel and you can be saved. <laughs> so he says, throw them to the lions. And they said, well, we already put the lions away for the night. Says, oh, burn them at the stake, right? And so they go and they gather wood and they, they burn them at the stake. And when he is first walking in, um, the, the, all of the people that are there with him, just as he first walks in, that um, everybody said they heard a voice say to Polycarp, and Poly, uh, 
Polycarp, play the man. Play the man as you go in there. And and um, everybody, all of the witnesses said, we actually heard God's voice visibly to Polycarp, or audibly to Polycarp as he went in. Well, uh, was it? 1,200 years later, you have Ridley and Latimer in Oxford Square. They are getting ready to be burned at the stake because they, they are um, refusing to deny Christ right towards the beginning of the English Reformation. They've been accused of having the Bible um, and having the Old Testament and the New Testament. and It was a, it's a strange time in history because there are churches everywhere and the bishop... Um, he brings this accusation of the teaching of the New Testament, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, in English. And the bishop says, I'm proud to announce I don't even know what the Old and New Testaments are. Right? It's, so, and so you've got churches everywhere, but the gospel is gone. And, in, and it, um, you know, it's been gone for 50 years, um, a gener- over a generation. And, the, uh, and so they're arrested and they're being dragged out to uh, be burned at the stake. And, and Latimer turns to Ridley and he says, I know a story we're in. He says, play the man, Master Ridley. We get to be Polycarp. We get this opportunity to be Polycarp. He says, play the man, Master Ridley. Today we'll light a fire in England that will never be put out. Because when Polycarp was burned at the stake, it was the Roman Empire that didn't survive. Right, the Roman Empire was the one that was destroyed. Polycarp, we still talk about. We don't even know the name of the governor that, that burned him at the stake. Polycarp <laughs> won. Right. Po- um, and, that, and that governor was the straight man. Right. Polycarp was the one that saw, oh wait, I know the punchline to this story. Right. So, um, and, and because they had read their Eusebius, uh, Master Ridley and Latimer, they said, I know this story. I know the punchline. This is the these these authorities are the ones that won't survive this. They're sending us to the stake. Play the man, Master Ridley. Today we light a fire in England that will never be put out. And uh, the that's that's what it looks like to understand the story that we're living in. To understand that it's not a it's not a series of snapshots. Uh, that yeah, there are times when we get to go to the stake. There are times when the, the, uh, the Bible is suppressed. There are times when you know, um, the, the Bible is passed through, through you know, by, from chained hand to chained hand to chained hand. But it's always the gospel that prevails. Right? Because the promises of God are true, even in those moments when it doesn't look true. Now, every Sunday morning, when we sit down and we eat the bread and drink the wine, Ridley, Latimer, Polycarp, right? They're there with us eating, right? We're, we're sitting down at the table and we're saying, oh, these are our people. We're in the same story. We're the, the promises of God that were true for them that we've seen prevail throughout history are true for me in this moment. And how do I know it? Because I'm eating the promise. I'm drinking the promise and I'm tasting it. The, the Lord is just as good to me as he was to them.